Bibles and to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And our text this morning is verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. And we began here last Sunday uh, in the first few verses, in which was a call for us to remember, or specifically for the Hebrews to remember, how they had endured persecution in the past and to look back upon the persecution that they had faced in the past and to steam it forward through the persecution that they were facing at this point. And it was the very uh, worry of persecution that was bringing about doubts in the Hebrews' minds that was beginning to bring into them questions of whether it was worth it to follow Christ. And specifically, as we saw in the first ten chapters of Hebrews, the danger was them abandoning Christ and going back to the old covenant way of doing things. And so he tells them and calls them to remember in these first few verses here, beginning in verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So in other words, after they had heard the gospel message and they had received the gospel message, look back to that time when you first called upon the name of Christ. And he goes on to say, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For so you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So look back on how you approached persecution. Look back on how you dealt with trials and struggles in life. You looked at this life as what it is. It's, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow and there's something greater uh, up ahead for us. There's something awaiting us that drives us to endure in this period of time. And so the apostle is calling these Hebrews, look on how you approached Christ when you first came to faith. You came to faith and things were very difficult. And and you got through them, and you got through them because you knew that there was something better for you, and that this was not all that there is in this life. So look back on that to move forward. And he calls them after that to be resolute. And we see that in verses 35 through 38. Let me read them to you. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so remain resolute. Call to recall, to call to remember, and a call to be resolute. And then finally, there's a reminder. And that's in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith 
and preserve their souls. Those that are truly in Christ will persevere. That's who we who have called upon Christ and Christ has called upon us are. We are those that persevere through the struggles. So we see here, remember how you dealt with the past struggles. Remain resolute in how you live your life and a reminder of who we are in Christ. And so this morning we specifically look at this idea of being resolute in verses 35 through 38. And it begins with the idea of don't walk away. Don't abandon the faith. Don't drift away from that which you have professed in Christ. Don't turn from Christ, but rather turn to Christ. And he says it in this way, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. You had a, a, a better possession and an abiding one, which you, you have clung to all of this time after your profession. So, so don't walk away from that. Don't throw away your confidence. And that idea of throw away is, is to cause a state to, to cease, uh, to make something stop by force. And it's really walking away from the faith. In other words, don't throw away that faith that you professed. Notice what it says. Don't throw away your confidence. Now, confidence can be confidence in what we have in Christ, and confidence is a common word in the book of Hebrews, our confidence that we have to approach God boldly because of the mediatorship of Christ. But there's another way that confidence is is often used, and it's in regards to our confidence in proclaiming the message, our confidence in who we are in Christ, our confidence in living for that abiding and better promise that we have in Christ. In fact, we see that used in chapter 3 in this way where it's used this way in verse verse 6 of chapter 3, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence, and notice the word, and our boasting in our hope. And so this confidence, that they're not to throw away, is their boldness. It's, they're not to throw away their courage or their courageous confession of the faith. Now, this is significant because if you throw away your confession of faith, we might see that as a lack of courage, but the Scripture actually describes it as one that doesn't know Christ. And so you look at what they had endured in that previous list of things of sufferings. They had endured affliction by a bold witness of their Christianity. In other words, the reason why they were persecuted, the reason why they had experienced imprisonment, the reason why they had experienced the plundering of their property was because of their association with Christ. Them claiming Christ, them saying, yes, I'm a Christian publicly, is the direct link to the persecution they faced. You can, you can understand this and if you think of how things are for Christians, let's say, in Iran. Or how things are for Christians in India. Or how things are for Christians in North Korea. 
They would experience plundering, imprisonment. They would experience severe hardships because of their association with Christ. And that's exactly what took place here. And so the temptation then is this, is I won't then speak about Christ. I won't proclaim my Christianity. That way I preserve myself. And so... He's calling them, don't throw away your confidence. You were bold for the gospel. Don't don't lose that. We have a great example of this this boldness in Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Just to get an idea of this. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated men, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is when Peter and John were boldly proclaiming Christ after they had been told not to, after they were threatened with their lives in Jerusalem where you you couldn't proclaim Christ. They were boldly out proclaiming Christ and said, "We, we we will obey God and not obey men. That's boldness. That's courage. That's a confidence that they had because they recognized they had a better and abiding promise awaiting for them so they could be bold and why specifically were they bold was it because Peter, John and these Hebrews at one time were just naturally courageous people that that had it in them inherently that they they were just naturally bold people I don't think so because what do we see with Peter when he's under pressure Peter denies Christ. What do we see with Peter when he's in Galatia? And well, Paul writes about it, Peter's encounter to the Galatians. Peter's tempted to go and be with the Jews and, and, and all of a sudden abandon the gospel. Peter, in many ways, we see as being a courageous person, but also he was not always a courageous person. So why is it that they were courageous? Why is it Peter and John were bold? Why is it that the Hebrews themselves were bold? Well, the book of Acts gives us the reason. It says in chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, with all confidence, with all courage. In other words, they placed themselves before the God of the universe and said, in prayer as a church gathered what a novel idea that the church would gather to pray and so we need boldness in this period of time look at Paul as example and no one would would dare say Paul was not courageous but Paul would not be one that says he's courageous by his own merits in Philippians chapter 1 In verse 19, Paul is possibly facing execution. This is Paul that wasn't afraid to do anything and would go on long missionary journeys and get beat from town to town and then get up and go proclaiming the gospel in the next town. That's this Paul. And as he's facing execution, he says this is he's not only facing execution, but people are trying to harm him that are in the name of Christ. And he says in, in, in verse 19, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, what? He won't lose his confidence, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so what does Paul say? He says to the church in Philippi, I'm facing some difficult circumstances and I need the church to gather and pray that I would be bold, that I would not lose my confidence under pressure. What do we see in all of these examples? Is that prayer was the means of their boldness encourage you know prayer has to be that means of confidence and boldness and faith because to pray for boldness to pray for courage is to recognize our own frailty it's to recognize before a sovereign god that i i i actually need help to be courageous i need help to have this confidence i need help that i won't walk away from the from the faith but, but I will actually see that better and abiding promise that's awaiting me. I need your help. It, it is in complete weakness of self and dependency upon Christ upon which the idea of boldness rests upon. So boldness rests upon our recognition of our weakness. And our inability to be bold and courageous. That's what we see continually through, as you look through the book of Acts, in the example of what it means to be bold and courageous. It's directly tied to recognizing I'm weak, I am but just a clay pot to be used for God's glory. Friends, we have to Pray to the Lord that he would make us bold. We have to, as a church, gather to pray and ask the Lord that we would be bold. And we have to gather as a church, pray for brothers and sisters that are suffering all across the world that need us to pray for their boldness and confidence. What a comfort it would be as if we were in a situation where we 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 desperately needed boldness because there was persecution. What a comfort it would be to know that the church was praying for us in some foreign land. Wouldn't that be a comfort? This is what we're called to do, is to gather to pray that we would be bold, that we would not throw away our confidence. Trace through the book of Hebrews how often the warning against falling away is directly tied to the gathering of the saints. It means this, is that the life and the body of the church is the means for preservation and perseverance in the Christian life. So if anyone thinks, I can do this apart from Christ's people, Christ says, no, you can't, but I've designed you 
to be my people, to be my body, to be my bride together. And these are the things that you are to do together so that you do not throw away your confidence. Friends, I cannot stress this enough, the vital aspect of one another. That's why there's so many one another passages in the Scripture telling us what we're to do when we gather together with one another and what we're not to do with one another. And he gives us a motivation for this at the end of verse 35. He says, which has great reward. In other words, not throwing away your confidence, there's great reward in that. You think of how to understand this idea of of reward. Jesus says in in Luke chapter 6, in verse 23, he says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. What's Jesus speaking about? He's speaking about endurance through persecution. He says in verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice the connection. You're experiencing persecution, isolation. People hate you because of Christ. But blessed are you. You've proclaimed Christ. And if you endure, there's a great reward for you. It's the crown and it's the glory of heaven. Now we have to be, we have to be absolutely certain this is not earned. It's not something we earn. In fact, Paul tells us very clearly in Luke chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, that's an unearned, unmerited gift, that is God's grace, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our, our crown, that is the glory of heaven which cannot be earned. And so we have to work through this. It's not inconsistent to say that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and and alone and that through perseverance we receive a reward. It's not inconsistent. In fact, the whole idea of a reward is to keep our eyes focused upon the prize awaiting us. Let me just make this super clear. Paul says this in Philippians in chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul had just finished saying to the church of Philippi, that the God, he explained the gospel that it is not by works, and if anyone could earn their way by works to heaven, Paul says it was him, but his works were worthless before God, but that it was entirely by God's grace that we could stand blameless 
and that we could have a righteousness not our own. But then he follows that by saying this, is I sprint forward, and you probably are familiar with the, the language of the athletic marathon that's taking place where the athlete is striving with all of their might, their, their veins are bulging and they're exhausted as they're running forward, but they're running forward for this prize that God has given them. That's the, the imagery that Paul is using. You think of it this way, this idea of a prize, it oftentimes makes things a little bit easier to deal with. And, and God tells us that there's this eternal life. He describes heaven for us in, in ways that we really can't even comprehend. Why, why does God give us that to say, this is yours? Why does Jesus tell the disciples before he's about ready to go to the cross and leave them? He says, I'm going to build you a place. Why? To encourage them. To encourage them to stand strong. Don't throw away your confidence. There's great reward for you. Hang on to it. He goes on to say, how we are to continue through this life in verse 36. And that's what our need is of how we deal this with this. He says in verse 36, For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And you see that connection again. An exhortation followed by here. Here's what's waiting for you. Here's what's waiting for you. And he calls us specifically that we have a, a need for endurance. Some translations say patience. It's, it's really the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. Do you know what patience is? And how do you know what patience is? It's because our patience runs real thin, real quick. But this is speaking of a patience of, of a longevity, in a sense. A patience of living in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. That's what the patience, endurance, specifically is related to here. This isn't speaking of an endurance in difficult uh, circumstances or so, uh, patience with people. It's not speaking of that. It's speaking of an endurance and patience between the two advents of Christ. You need to hang on because Christ is coming. And He hasn't come yet. But as you go through this struggle of life, you, you need to be patient. You need to endure. And this is by God's grace. And what we learn oftentimes, and just to use the example that's overused, is you pray for patience, and then God gives you circumstances in which you learn to be patient. So how does God teach, teach us how to endure in this life through the circumstances that come our way? That's how we learn to endure. If everything was great and people congratulated you because you were a follower of Christ, you wouldn't endure anything. So what's the call and the need to endurance? Notice how James says it. 
In chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." In other words, as we face trials, as we have to endure through things, it's actually to make us complete. It's actually doing a work in us so that we can bear up under difficult situations. James is telling us that the opportunity to endure through things is actually a a building exercise for us, a building up character. And we have to understand is that hardships themselves are not enjoyable. The Bible doesn't say that we, we, the hardship itself is something we're to have joy in. That's not what it's speaking of. We can have joy in the midst of hardships. And why? Because it's teaching us something. It's building us. It's for our good, even though we may not like it. It's shaping us. You think of a parent that painfully has to correct a child, and it's hard for the parent to do so, and it's difficult for the parent to do so, and and the child, their whole world is wrapped around that discipline that's coming to them. But we do it. Why? Because it's good for the child. And actually not disciplining a child is the worst thing you can do for your child. If you want to raise a hellion, don't discipline him. If you want to raise an atheist, don't discipline him. God disciplines us and takes us through difficulties for the purpose of shaping us in a perfect way. I've never disciplined perfect. But my Heavenly Father always disciplines perfect. And I can trust in that. And it is for our good. It's doing something to us. And this is why he says it's a necessity that you need this. You need to be able to endure. You need to be able to have patience through things. And why do we have to have patience through things? Very simply, to understand it, is because things do not always go the way we have ex- may have expected them to have gone. Things always do not go our way. And so endurance is a life lived in accordance with the will of God. And notice what he says. So that, that's saying the purpose, the words so that are, are giving us a purpose statement, so that when you have done... That is, when we we have faithfully lived our life because it has been transformed by Christ, you may receive what is promised. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what he says, the one who does the will of of my Father. Jesus teaches us why he can say that, and also we can learn that we're not saved by our works. And because you could abuse that and say, okay, it's now dependent upon what I do to get to heaven. 
But Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, we have to read this in context where Jesus says this, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Does Jesus seem confused when he uses this illustration of fruit? He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, Jesus talks about that when we are in Him, that when we have been transformed by grace, and Jesus is teaching us of the transforming power of His grace, is that there's actually something that happens that's tangible that others are able to see. Now, we don't rest our salvation on that. We don't rest our salvation on how well we did things. But Jesus nonetheless speaks of transforming grace as actually being, here it is, transforming. That's the whole point of our salvation, is that we would be transformed closer to the image of Christ. So what we need to understand is that when we come to Christ, there is a change in us. It's not perfection. We've not fully been formed, but we're, we're continually being transformed. We are in the process of being transformed to align with the, the inner transformation, the true transformation that has taken place. You just consider for a second what the Scripture says of those that are not in Christ. None is good. No, not one is righteous. None seeks after God. Paul says that in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Psalms. Saying this is, this is what man is like after the fall. But then we're commanded here by Paul in all of his epistles and through the book of Hebrews that we're called to live holy lives. Why? Because of the power of transforming grace. Because something in us has changed. This is why we can be commanded, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. You, You cannot tell an unregenerate person to look like Christ. They can't. Scripture says that they do not do good, that there's none righteous. They will be just like Old Testament Israel. They'll continually go through a cycle of falling because they have not been transformed. But the reality of being transformed is a change. And what is incredible about this, so that when you have done the will of God... It says, so when when you have done, it's speaking of what we have done. What is it? The will of God. Who is our example? Well, Paul said, imitate me as I am of Christ. But just in the book of Hebrews, notice our example. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. In verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. That is speaking of Christ. Our example is Christ who did the will of his Father perfectly. Our example is of Christ who was perfect in his obedience. So follow Christ in obedience, which is the fruit 
of your faith. It's not, it's not your faith. It's the fruit of your faith. It's faithful living, but our faith is why we are saved through faith. And our example of that is Christ, who, who came to do the will of the Father, and so you must do the will of the Father. And what did that obedience to Christ look like? It's the same thing that it looked like for these Hebrews. And it's the same thing that it has looked like for Christians for 2,000 years. What did obedience to the will of the Father mean for Jesus? It meant being spit upon. It meant being mocked. It meant being hung upon a cross. Not for his sins. It meant being lied about publicly. It meant going before a a fake trial to execute him. Should we think that we're above our master? It's actually a clear call to follow Christ. And when we look at what it meant for Christ to be obedient to the Father, should we expect that we will ourselves not face what Christ faced? What is the will of God? Consider it for me with, with me for a moment. It's actually not described here what the will of God is, but we tr- traditionally think of the will of God in two things. God's secret will, that is God's eternal plan in which all things in this world are unfolding that we, we're, we're, we don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in 10 seconds, let alone what's going to happen tomorrow. That's God's secret will. But then we have God's revealed will. And what's God's revealed will? Well, God's revealed will is the Bible. God's revealed will is what has already happened. But God's revealed will specifically is speaking of His Bible that instructs us how to live in light of what Christ has done. And I want you to see how these two work together. God's revealed will which we have in our hands, and God's secret will, which we're not privy to. See how these two things work together. According to the secret will of God, the church is to endure persecution. That's according to the secret will of God. The church is to endure persecution. And according to the revealed will of God, we are called and commanded to endure through that persecution. This is a call to be faithful. Can can a Christian be a true Christian and live in unrepentant sin? Can a a Christian be a true Christian and not show signs of growth or fruit of the Spirit? Do we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we believe in the work of of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer? Do we believe in the correcting nature of God's Word in the life of the Spirit-filled believer? And that's the theological point being made. And that's what's behind this command, is to stay on track because God has transformed you. And if God has transformed you, you will stay on track. Again, I want to stress this because we so easily move ourselves into the idea that my salvation, as Jerry Bridges says, is based upon my performance. Salvation is not based upon your performance, based upon what Christ has done. We're not saved by faithfulness. You are not saved by how well you follow Christ. 
We're not saved by how well we repented in this life. We're not saved by anything we do. We are saved by the shed blood of Christ. And that by His grace, He imputes that to the believer. And the believer receives that through the empty hand of faith. We're saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. But we will see fruit, won't we? We will see fruit. And so why were they tempted to walk away? Well, specifically, this text is telling us because they were growing impatient. Several times the the book of Hebrews mentions that they were in the last days. In fact, it begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in these last days. Chapter 10, verse 25, it says, it encourages them to not neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the, the day. The day is probably capitalized in your Bible, which is speaking of the Lord's day. When the Lord returns... But what's the problem with that day and the return of Christ is it hasn't yet come. And so they're growing impatient. And so to combat this, the apostle goes to the Old Testament, and specifically he goes to the book of Habakkuk and to the book of Isaiah. And he, and he strings together part of Isaiah along with a part of Habakkuk to encourage them. Now, I know that Habakkuk is probably not a book that we're we're overly familiar with. But let me just give you a synopsis of Habakkuk. The people of Israel were facing oppression. They were facing persecution. And they cried out to the Lord. And they wanted to know when the righteous would be vindicated by God. And if you read Habakkuk, Habakkuk is crying out, Lord, when, when... When? How long? And the Lord responds with comforting words to Habakkuk. Be patient. I will bring justice. But the text actually, in verse 37, doesn't begin in Habakkuk. It it, it begins in Isaiah. And that phrase, yet a little while, is not found in Habakkuk, but is found in in Isaiah. in, in, In Isaiah 26, and if you would turn there, Isaiah 26, I want you to see in verse 20 and 21 how this functions for Isaiah and God's people. It begins in verse 20 of Isaiah 26. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while. And there's that phrase that the author of Hebrews picks upon. For a little while, that's what it says, until the fury has passed by. Hold on for a little while until this has passed. Why? Why do they wait for the fury to pass? Verse 21 gives us the glorious news of the Messiah. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for the iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Hang on just a little while because the Lord is coming, and when he comes, he is bringing judgment. 
just hang on, it's just a little while longer. He says in Habakkuk, in quoting Habakkuk, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Just hang on. Christ is, is described as the coming one and, and then we're given the promise he's not going to delay. So you see two promises here that he is coming and that he's coming quickly. And if we wonder, how long is it going to take to, for, for Jesus to return? Well, let me just ask you, is God ever late? Has God ever forgotten anything? Does he not know what you're going through? Is what you're dealing with or what other Christians dealing with worse than what Christians have dealt with in the past? Is his timing perfect? Is God going to be late for his appointment of sending his son? He's sending the coming one, and he will come. Think of what Peter says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What's fascinating is that when you read the New Testament, it's very clear that the the apostles were awaiting the return of the Lord that they were waiting for Christ to return, and it didn't happen. But they lived in preparation for it. We cannot predict it, but we can be certain that it will happen, and we are to live faithfully for yet a little while. And so we're called to live by faith, verse 38. But as my righteous one shall live by faith, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. My my, my righteous one shall live by faith. Paul quotes this passage in Romans. He quotes it in Galatians. And and the word order is crucial so that we understand this. He says, my righteous, that, that is those that have been justified. It's speaking of an accomplished fact, the righteous. It's a, it's a group of people. And this is how we, we reconcile, as if they needed to be reconciled, the idea of living faithfully for a reward and being justified by God's grace alone. So it's speaking of those that have been justified by faith. Righteous, knowing that we have no righteousness. It's speaking of the one that has received by faith the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They are now righteous. And the righteous will live by faith. Why? Why will the righteous live by faith? Because they're righteous. And a perfect righteousness. Christ's righteousness. But it says here, the faithless are rejected. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so that shrinking back is the one who rejects the will of God. And here specifically, the, the, the cause for them possibly rejecting Christ was because of fear of the consequences of saying, yes, I follow Christ. So they were tempted to reject Christ because they think it might relieve them of their persecution or it might relieve them of mocking. It might make their lives more comfortable if they weren't associated with Christ. 
So listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The one who shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. What a warning. To persevere in the faith. And he follows this with this exhortation and this reminder. And I love how he closes it. He closes it with this is, but those that are truly in Christ will persevere. If you know Christ, the righteous will live by faith. It says in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. So the truly saved will persevere. It's that reminder that the righteous will live by faith. And this section introduces the, the idea of living by faith, by which serves as an introduction to the next chapter. Chapter 11, one of the most wonderful chapters in all of Scripture, the Hall of Faith, which provides us with with examples of those that endured through hardship because they were looking ahead. And and the conclusion of that whole chapter 11 is in chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the argument that he begins here in chapter 10, in verse 32 through 39, he takes a sidestep to say, here's an example, and then he concludes that, he concludes the argument made here by saying, let us endure. We have such great witnesses of those that endured for for us. And so the word from Christ we need to hear today is that if you are in Christ, you will persevere. If you are in Christ, the righteous one shall live by faith. If you're in Christ, you will run the race faithfully. Doesn't mean you run it perfectly because we had a, a Savior that ran it for us perfectly. But you will run it. You will strive ahead because you've been transformed by God's sovereign grace. But there's also the warning here if Christ is only on your lips but not in your heart, you will shrink back. When things get tough, you'll walk away. And he will reject you. He will destroy you for an eternity. But we who are in Christ will not shrink. And God the Father will take pleasure in you because of his Son. And on his Son's account, he will welcome you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is in him, that is complete, that is perfect. We thank you, Father, that our salvation does not rest upon how well we run the race, 
Our salvation does not rest on, on how well we do the Christian life, but rests upon your grace and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ that will not let us out of his hand. Father, prepare our hearts for difficulties that we face in this Christian life, and may they not be a temptation for us to turn away. But may we see all hardships as, as building us up for character to persevere through difficult times. We pray your grace to help and guide us in this, that we would live faithfully because we've been transformed by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.